Good morning. My name is Mark, and uh, as you heard in the prayer, Corey is away right now at a conference, and uh, I have the privilege of preaching to you from Revelation chapter 5. And I don't, this, I don't think this is an exaggeration, but I really think that Revelation 5 might be the most important chapter in the book of Revelation. Because in Revelation 5, and also 4, which Corey preached on yesterday, we start to get a sense of what John is uh, trying to do. What this vision, this apocalypse that he's received from God is all about. And there's something that Revelation as a whole book and also chapter 5 teaches us. It gives us eyes to see that today in our world there's a war waging. It's a war that's been going on for a long time and it's a war that will determine the future of the world and it's a war that affects each and every one of us here. I'm not talking about the war that's happening in Ukraine or the fighting that recently broke out in Azerbaijan. I'm talking about the war that we read about in Revelation. It's a cosmic war between God and the forces of evil. It's a war that is ongoing and it touches our lives if we have the eyes to see. So today, I want to show you from Revelation how God has won this war and what it means for all of you today. Uh, so let's pray briefly before we look at the text. Lord, we need your help to understand uh, this mysterious but beautiful book. So give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, uh, what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Revelation is an easily misunderstood book because it is a book that uses a lot of dazzling, mysterious imagery and pictures that are just that. They are pictures and they are images of what God has done what he is doing, and what he will do in the future. But if we read it as only a book about the future, then we can conveniently put Revelation to the side as just a specimen to be studied, instead of the word of God which speaks to each of us today. But because Revelation speaks to us as God's word, we can learn from it about the reality of our world. Revelation is a challenging book, maybe the most challenging book in the New Testament. But Revelation chapters 4 to 5 are the key to understanding Revelation's message. Because a lot of the themes that you see throughout the entire book show up here in chapters 4 to 5. One of those themes is the reality of God's war against Satan and the forces of evil throughout history. And we find that here in today's passage. So I don't know if you've noticed this in our study of Revelation thus far, but there's this one word or phrase that resounds throughout the whole book. 
and it's the word to conquer. It's used more times in Revelation than in any other book in the New Testament. And in the seven letters to the churches uh, at the beginning of Revelation, each letter ends with the phrase, to the one who conquers. So, for example, Revelation 2, 7. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Revelation 2, 9. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. But even though John says this phrase again and again, it's not really clear what he means by conquering. Because conquering is military language. But what or who are we supposed to conquer? And more importantly, how? The meaning only becomes clear as we read the rest of Revelation and we see how this metaphor unfolds. So John, he starts to peel back the curtain a little bit on this phrase in uh, chapter 3. That's the last letter to the seven churches. And at the end of this letter, he says this, um, where Jesus says, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So there, now we can see that it's not just we who must conquer, but in some way our conquering follows Jesus' victory. Jesus also conquered, but how? Our passage today tells us what it means for Jesus to conquer. And if we can understand this, then we will understand what it means for us to join him and to conquer. And this is crucial for our lives now, and it's also crucial for our future, for our destiny. Because when we think of Revelation, we often think of the future, right? We think of the hope that we have at the end of Revelation, this picture of a new heaven and new earth where every tear is wiped away and death is no more. But who is that hope for? In Revelation 21.7, it says, the one who conquers will inherit these things. So it's crucial that we grasp what that means. This war in Revelation, it's a war that's waged by God against Satan and the forces of evil. It's a war against anything opposed to God's rule. Every kingdom, every power, every thought or deed done against God. And chapter 5 gives us a key to this war, okay? And it begins with a crisis. So we read chapter 5, and we hear that there's a scroll in God's right hand. It's sealed with seven seals, which signifies the importance of its contents. It's a scroll that most likely contains God's plan for the judgment and redemption of humanity. But when an angel asks, who is worthy to open this scroll? There's silence. No one is worthy. No one in heaven, no one on earth is worthy. So John begins to weep. He begins to weep loudly, it says. Is anyone worthy to open this scroll? Is anyone worthy to move God's plan forward? That's why John is weeping. Because if no one is worthy, then there is no hope for humanity. 
But then one of the elders says, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Someone has been found worthy. It's the lion of Judah, the root of David, who has conquered. All three of those images, the lion of Judah, the root of David, the one who has conquered, those were all images of the Jewish Messiah from the Old Testament. And Jews in that day, they would have heard these terms as references to a conqueror who would come and overthrow Israel's enemies by military violence. And given what we know about the church in this day, oppressed under the Roman Empire, given the fact that John is writing from exile on an island, it seems like this is the one we need, right? The one worthy to open the scroll and move God's purposes forward must be this king who conquers his enemies by force. This is who we are expected to see when John hears this. What we need is a strong and mighty conqueror to overthrow God's enemies. But I don't want you to miss what is astounding about this passage. Because there's a paradox between this verse and the next verse. And I would go so far as to say that the transition between verse 5 and 6 is crucial not just for understanding this passage, not just for understanding Revelation, but for understanding the gospel. So in verse 5, John hears one of the elders speak of the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, the one who has conquered. But when John looks up, what does he see? It says, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. How can the Lion of Judah, the one who conquers, be a lamb who was slain? There's a paradox here that can only be unraveled by the truth of the gospel. We need spiritual eyes to understand what this means. Because not only is a gentle lamb the complete opposite of a lion, right? But we're told in verse 5 that it's because the lion has conquered that he's worthy to open the scroll, right? That's what makes him able to do that. He has conquered. But in the rest of this chapter, we see that this lamb is worthy because he was slain. In verses 9 through 10, the host of heaven sings to the lamb, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So verse 9 tells us that the lamb is worthy for or because he was slain. And to be slain is not an image of victory. It's an image of defeat. What that means is that to conquer means to die. To win, to be victorious, that means to suffer defeat in the eyes of the world. You know, when Jesus' disciples saw Jesus hanging naked on the cross, they didn't think, our conqueror has come. 
they thought they had lost. That's why on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, some of his followers said, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped, but he died. If you've been a Christian for a long time or if you grew up in the church, you're familiar with all the Sunday school answers and you're used to, perhaps, thinking of Jesus as a lamb. So to really hear the force of this verse, we need to inhabit the space of the disciples before the resurrection. Think about the disciples, those who lived and walked with Jesus. They knew the Old Testament better than all of us in the original Hebrew. They were expecting a Messiah, a conqueror to come and overthrow Israel's enemies. And then one day, they met this man who did amazing wonders. This man who spoke parables like they had never heard, who did signs and miracles. And they thought, could it be him? Is he the one worthy to take the mantle of Israel's Messiah, to be the conqueror that we need? And in Mark chapter 8, this carpenter from Nazareth tells them why he has come. He says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And what does Peter do? It says that he rebuked him. Peter rebukes the Lord of the universe. Wow. Because Peter, he knows that this doesn't make sense, that the Messiah should die. How then could he win? How could he win against our enemies? This is how Jesus has conquered. He has won the decisive victory in the war between God and the forces of evil. He is worthy to open the scroll and move God's plan for redemption forward because he has died and he was raised. And by his death, he has secured God's victory against evil. So what this does, what the gospel does, is it not just gives us the answer to what it means to conquer, but it shifts our understanding of what it means to conquer, of what it means to win in the kingdom of God. To win means to lose in the eyes of the world. To have life means to die. To be raised up, to be exalted, means to be brought low. So when we think about the message of Christianity, we need to hold both of these truths together. That Jesus is the Lion of Judah and he is the slain lamb. And if your Christianity only has room for a conquering lion, then it's a false gospel. It's the gospel the disciples believed before the resurrection. It's a Christianity that wants power and glory for itself without sacrifice, without love. On the other hand, if your Christianity only sees the slain lamb, then it's a hopeless gospel because it can't see that the victory has already been won. And we can have hope in this age because God's Son has won the war 
And we have a king who is reigning now over all nations. And yet, I think I don't need to convince anyone here that evil still persists in our world. Sin still exists in our own hearts, in our lives, and the world continues to oppose the church in God's ways. So what is God doing here and now? This war, according to Revelation, is ongoing, as you read in the rest of the book. And we, as a church, are called to conquer, right? We saw that in all of the letters. Um, each of the letters concludes with that promise, with a promise to the one who conquers. So that's a call for all of us to follow Christ. In this war that God is raging, or sorry, waging, it tells us that there are no civilians. We're all called to join the Messiah's army. But if Jesus conquered by death, what does it mean for us to conquer? Revelation tells us in chapter 12, verse 10, we read this. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. So the ones who conquer in Revelation are the martyrs. They are the faithful witnesses who give up their lives. In order to win, we are called to lose in the eyes of the world, like Jesus. In order to conquer, we are called to die as Jesus died. We are called to follow him, as Jesus himself said, right? Take up your cross and follow me. For some around the world, this means that they will literally give up their lives as faithful witnesses to Christ against oppressive governments. Corey is at a conference right now in Asia where there are many uh, Christians attending who are risking their safety to be there. And I don't want to minimize their sacrifice. But I also don't want to minimize how we are engaged in this conflict here in Kerry. We all need to ask ourselves, what does it look like for me to conquer as Jesus conquered in my everyday life? And if we look outside of Revelation, we can learn a lot from the Apostle Paul, who probably knew better than anyone else what it meant to die with Jesus. He talks about dying with Jesus all throughout his letters, um, and here's just one passage from 2 Corinthians 4, verse 11. He says, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. So what does it mean to die with Christ? It means that for the sake of love, you give yourself up for someone else. You sacrifice something that is yours for the sake of another. It could be your time. 
It could be your energy, your freedom. It could even be your right to be right in an argument. To die with Christ is to die to your own desires, your own wants in a particular moment so that someone else can experience life. This is what Jesus did, and this is what we are called to do, though not in the same way, just to be clear. Jesus' once-for-all death paid for our redemption, and our deaths don't do that for others. But in our dying, we reenact Jesus' act of giving himself up for others. And that's part of what Paul is talking about here in 2 Corinthians. If you want a resource that really gets into the details of what it means to die and rise with Jesus every day, I want to recommend, I think some of you have already read this book. It's Paul Miller's book, uh, J-Curve, Dying and Rising with Jesus in Everyday Life. And in uh, this book, he says that what he calls the J-curve of dying and rising with Jesus, he says that this J-curve does three things. Uh, One, it entails some kind of suffering in which evil is weakened or killed. Two, it weakens the flesh and forms us into the image of Jesus. And three, it leads to a real-time present resurrection. And the reason why I love this book is because if you know anything about Paul Miller and his other writings, whenever he talks about the gospel in everyday life, the examples he gives are so pedestrian and it's wonderful. You cannot read his book and say, the gospel, dying with Jesus, that just doesn't apply to me. That's just for you know, the faithful across the world, the missionaries, the pastors. No, he challenges you to look at your own life every day and ask that question. What does it mean to die and rise with Jesus? And I think that helps us because oftentimes when we think about suffering for Christ or we think about sharing in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, as Paul calls it, we don't look at the things we experience day to day as opportunities to suffer with Christ. But that's not how God sees our lives. When Jesus calls us to follow him, he calls us to give all of who we are. We don't just give him the spiritual parts of our lives while our daily struggles exist somewhere else. No, he calls us to give all of who we are. Any sort of distress or hardship, or pain, is a form of suffering. And when we willingly undergo suffering or sacrifice ourselves for someone else, we share in Christ's sufferings. When we see sin in ourselves and we put it to death by denying ourselves, it's a form of dying with Christ. We proclaim Christ in this way by embodying the gospel. The vision of our church is to proclaim Christ. And that's not just for the pastors or the officers of the church. That's for all of us here in word and through our lives. I am a very, very imperfect parent, um, as I see every single day. But I am, by God's grace, learning more and more each day 
to say no to my own wants and desires as I look to Jesus who died for me and to share in his sufferings for the sake of my kids. And when I do that, when I do that, I can see that they experience life. And so do I. Because when I participate in this dying with Jesus, I experience the joy of fellowship with Christ. And I experience resurrection life from the Spirit. So when we die for the sake of others, God opens up the door for us to experience resurrection with him. So even now, when we reach out to those who are hurting around us, there's a joy that God gives you when you surrender yourself to him and when you share in Christ's sufferings. So what does it look like for you to conquer this week, to wage war against evil as you die each day at work, at home, or at school? Maybe when those around you oppose or ridicule Christianity, maybe it looks like responding with words of truth and love, saying no to that desire to vindicate yourself and instead seeking the good of others. When you leave church today and maybe your kids are screaming in the car and every fiber in your body wants to scream and rage, maybe I'm just projecting myself a little too much here, (laughs) but maybe in that moment, dying means looking to Christ and with the Spirit's help, responding with words of grace and mercy. In his book, Paul Miller, he, uh, he shares the story of a woman named Joni Erickson Tata. You might be familiar with her and her ministry. Uh, she became a quadriplegic after a diving accident uh, when she was 17. And so jo- Joni, she struggled immensely with the reality that she would be in a wheelchair for the rest of her life. And she was angry at God. But Paul Miller describes how her life changed when she received the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. She received the wheelchair, Miller writes. She didn't push away the fellowship of his sufferings. Likewise, God has given each of us a wheelchair, he goes on. It might be a critical spouse, a wayward child, an always tight budget, or the prospect of lifelong singleness. These chairs are doors to knowing Jesus in ways we never imagined, but they must be received. We can't push them away. I can't say that I know what dying with Christ will look like for you, but I can only say that if you die with Christ, if you receive the fellowship of his sufferings, God will open up the door for you to experience resurrection life with him. And in this way, through your life, God is working to push back the forces of evil as we proclaim the truth of the gospel with our lives. All of us are called to live the paradox of victory by death, which Jesus makes possible. That's God's plan in this war against evil. 
not that we would seek to be strong and conquer our enemies by force, but that like Jesus, the church would be brought low and die so that others can have life, and in this way, we are victorious. So as we close here, I just want to end um, by reciting together these words of praise from verses 12 um, to 14. A lot of revelation ends with praise and worship. Um, so I want to say this together in praise to God. And you know, I know we are a Presbyterian church here, but it does say that they said this with a loud voice in verse 12. So starting with the word worthy in verse 12, please read with me. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Please pray with me. Lord, we are astounded, amazed at your worthiness to open the scroll, Lord. Help us to live out the paradox of conquering, of winning, being victorious by death, Lord God. Lord, it's easy to say, it's easy to memorize the Sunday school answers, but help us to truly, truly live out the gospel in this way, and in that way, as we share in your sufferings, Lord, help us to experience resurrection life. Lord, you are worthy. Lord, be with us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.